Our worship is only as free as our perception of Him is. The more we carry, the less we praise. And there are so many times God wants to do so many things, but in order to do what He wants, sometimes He has to take a, a bypass to get us right so that we're ready to receive what he wants to give. But if we're focused on something that he's not, then he has to change our focus. And burdens, if they're carried long enough, they become idols. Because what we focus on is what we worship. What you focus on is what you begin to give word to. Just like I said before we started it, complaining is to the devil what worship is to God. So when you give voice to something, you're empowering it. And the more you empower it, the more it takes hold of you. And the more it takes hold of you, the more you focus on it. And the more you focus on it, the more you look at it, and the more you worship it. So our worship is only as powerful as our perception of him. If we come in defeated, we worship under a defeated mentality. And then our praise becomes more about us than it becomes about him. Our praise becomes more about him serving us than us serving him. We become the focus of the relationship. But see, you do realize that it doesn't matter how bad your life is. You're always free. <laughs> see, even the heathens are free. They just choose bondage. Jesus set everybody free on the cross. Everybody. You're free to choose. You're free to do whatever you want. You're free to love him, hate him, deny him, accept him. You're free. Everybody's free constantly. The bondage we carry is self-inflicted. Jesus didn't do a half job. He didn't go you know, partially through the cross and, and leave half of us stranded. When he got the keys, he got the keys for everybody. So when we worship with a half heart, it's because we don't believe that we're totally free. We're worshiping under an element that we are actually over. And that element chooses, it steals the focus, which means it's stealing from God because we were created to worship Him. And so, so many times what we call worship is God coming down, like to touch us. And we like that. It's like, oh man, the Holy Spirit really moved. But true worship is us going up into Him whether you feel it or not. Because he said that you're seated with him. He said that. So it's not about how you feel, it's about how he feels. Which is why most of Christianity screwed up because 90% of Christianity is about how we feel. And we're trying to get God to fix that when God's already fixed that on the cross and he's just trying to get us to come into how he feels. So if our worship is moved by emotion, there's no room for momentum from God. If something's moving you other than him, there's no kingdom momentum. If your circumstance is moving you, if your marriage is moving you, if your finances are moving you, if your job's moving you, if your kids are moving you, if something's moving you other than him, then there's no room for Jesus to lead you. <laughs> you're already on a trajectory. You're already on a course. 
And we have to get God to intervene. That's what we call Christianity is God intervening. What he calls Christianity is not intervention. It's possession. I know so many people that spend their entire prayer life complaining and then calling it prayer. Asking God to set them free from what they've already been set free from. They just walk around with the wrong mentality because they've never, they've never renewed their mind. An unrenewed mind will only go a short ways during true worship. This is why Jesus said you must worship in spirit and in truth, not out of your head and not out of your circumstances, not out of your issues. And I mean, we get so critical of ourselves, of churches, of worship, of preachers, of pastors, of everything that we forget that he's given us the power and the control and the authority. We're just giving it to the wrong thing. And then we come into church like beggars instead of sons. Waiting for God to move when he's waiting for us to move him. Because you move him. You're that important to him that you can move him. Remember when Jesus was here, he was moved with compassion. He wasn't moved with circumstance. He was moved by people, not things happening. He saw that they were sheep without a shepherd. He saw them. He didn't see their need. He was their answer. He knows that he was their need. So what moves us? See, until he moves us, we're never going to understand what true worship is. Because it's only in spirit. That's not in some spooky spiritual way we're talking about that we can't actually physically define. It's from the heart. It's free. It's liberated. It's not bound. It's not held by past sins nor future pressures and stresses. It's, it's free. Does this make sense? So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for your grace. Lord, I need your help this morning. I need your help by the Holy Spirit. That's why you sent him. So I ask that you make this clear. The words that I speak would be spirit and life, Father, that they would be of your heart. And they would make the mind of man be able to bow to the purposes of God. And where religion and overlay has been placed, I ask, Father, with the hammer of the word, you to just begin to crack that where our traditions have gotten in the way of your intent, where our wrong teachings and doctrines have removed us from the power of possibility that you've placed in our lives, where we've dumbed down the gospel for the sake of false humility. I ask you to break those things. I ask you to restore your church to her true intention, to remove the spirit of performance. May God that we would begin to move in a way that would please you. We thank you. We love you. We honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, for those of you who have children who want to send them back to the children's church, you're more than welcome to. Um, if you want to keep them with you, it's totally fine as well.
Okay. You guys okay? Eh, we lost a few already. That's okay. All right. We'll keep going. Um, so one day there was a little girl sitting watching her mother doing the dishes at the kitchen sink, and she suddenly noticed that her mother had several strands of gray hair sticking out in contrast to her brunette hair. She looks at her mother and inquisitively asks, Mama, why are some of your hairs white? Her mother replied, well, every time you do something wrong and make me cry or unhappy, one of my hairs turns white. The little girl sat and thought about this revelation for a long time, and then finally she asked, Mommy, how come all of Grandma's hairs are white? There we go. All right. I want you to turn to, um, let's see, where are we going to be at? We're going to be all over the place. Are you guys good with jumping around? So if we're going to jump around, I'm not going to tell you to go to a specific place. You can kind of either go there as we go or follow on the board, and we'll put the pressure on Jacob in the back to get it up on the screen, right? <laughs> I appreciate you, bro. Psalm 115, verse 16. What I want to talk to you about this morning is um, prayer and the transference of kingdom power. Before I want to talk about that, I need to say a couple things to be able to preface this, and I want to try to hurry this through so I don't take too much time. But without prayer, nothing happens. If you don't pray, God doesn't come. And I'll explain to that what that means and why I'm saying that that way. And I want to make this very clear. A church that doesn't pray has no uh, hold or access to the kingdom of heaven. You with me? But if you want to take the one thing that the church does the least, it's probably the thing she should do the most. People just don't pray. And when they do, they just, like I said earlier, they just complain and call it prayer. If you want something to change in your life, you need a kingdom greater than your own to influence it. If you don't call upon that kingdom to influence yours, there is no alliance. You are left to your own power and authority. And people do have different auras of power and authority. I don't want to use the word aura, but that's what presence, gifts, callings. And if you take on those things by yourself, you're only going to go as far as you're able to in, in your own nature. Which for some people is not very far. For some people it's a little farther. For all of us, it's not far enough. You with me? Okay. So... Prayer has to be seated in the church of Jesus Christ before the mandate of the work can actually occur. The church is really good with works, but she's terrible with prayer. Show me a church that's trying to work the gospel without praying, and she'll have no fruit. The best that she will create is someone just like herself, which is propagation of illegitimate mentalities. People who work for their faith instead of work because of it. Okay, this is, how we, this is how we begin to proselytize religion when we replicate ourselves without Jesus. Do you realize that no matter what you think, you're discipling people, especially your children, they will end up just like you? Why? Because we can only create what we become. Try to create something greater than yourself, and it takes a greater kingdom, a greater influence to make that happen. Otherwise, they end up just like you. This is why Jesus said to the Pharisees, you travel the world to make one proselyte, and you make them twice the child of hell that you are. 
So not only do you make them like you, you make them worse without him. Because the, the, the double portion doesn't just go to the spiritual things of God. The double portion also goes to the way of the enemy. Why? Because generations were made for double. They weren't made for regression. They were made for progression. With me. This is why what's, what's tolerated in one generation is what's praised in the next. Okay? We create things. True or not? Why? Because we're made in the image of God. And you can create things without God. Do you think God created pornography? Who created that? Man did. Without the Lord. You with me? We can create things. And so when we, want to, when we come into the realm of prayer, we have to understand we're calling upon a greater kingdom to influence our own. And there's a reason for that. Because we have the authority here, and without God, we have no access to the things of God. Without prayer, we have no access to the things of the kingdom. So we're trying to build the kingdom here without accessing it there. Prayer has to come before the work. It has to. If prayer doesn't come before the work, then the work is nothing but regurgitated religion. You, in, you influence people, but not in a positive way. You sign them up for church, but it's the same church that's murdered you and your family and all the other generations you know, religiously for the past 30 or 40, 50 years. It's like, come to, come to this church where um, we're the same that we've been for the last 60 years and we're miserable, but come anyway. And we've changed nothing politically. We've changed nothing spiritually. The best we manage to do is just create people to come exist in the same thing that we've existed in. And it's just what we do. So come. And we're surprised that the world's like, no thanks. But why? Because you look miserable. That's why. Why would I want what you have? Right? So, um, before we, we get into prayer, I have to say this. If you walk in unforgiveness, no prayer you pray will ever be answered. Why? I'll get to it in a little bit. I don't have time to really go into all this because this is a side note, but it's a very important side note. This should be a series, but I don't have time. All right? If you walk in unforgiveness, no prayer you're praying could be answered. Because the Bible says that your battle is not with flesh and blood. So the origin of your purpose is to fight things that are not of this world. Unforgiveness locks you in a battle with things that are of this world, which means the things that are outside of this world have no authority in your life, except for of darkness. So if you're in unforgiveness towards somebody who's hurt you, I don't care what they've done, then when you go to pray, the Bible says that you need to stop praying immediately. Because I, so I know so many people are like, well, I just pray, and I just pray and pray, but they're full of unforgiveness. My Bible says you stop praying immediately. Stop your, your spiritualism and your super sloppy, whatever it might be that you're, ooh, you know, the Lord or whatever, and you go to that person and you make it right. Otherwise, you're pray you might as well not even pray. Because he says he won't hear you. And it's interesting that way that, 
that says it. I don't like the way it says it, but it says it this way. It says it doesn't, it doesn't say if you have a problem with them, go to them. It says if they have a problem with you, you go to them. Why? Because we all bear the responsibility of unity. Without unity, there's no power. Without unity, I don't care how big your vision is. Without unity, it won't happen. No one person in the kingdom is big enough to do the job of the kingdom. It takes an entire family. It takes people backing your vision. And if you have separated people through unforgiveness, how are they going to back your vision if they don't even back you? You with me? See, the more you hang around people and the more you're challenged with unforgiveness in your life and you, and you take this to, to heart, the more you begin to love the person that you're around and you begin to cover a, a, a multitude of sins with love. And then after a while, you, their vision becomes valuable because they're valuable. And then you want to work with them because of the love that you have for them. This is why community is so important. And it's our responsibility through prayer and through forgiveness to be able to hold the bond of unity. Which is what the church is absolutely terrible at doing. She's offended at everything. I've had people come to church and they're like, well, you really offended me. I'm like, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Jesus offended people all the time. Offense is your problem. My Bible says, Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. You love the word of God, you should be above offense. The only reason you're offended, me too, when I, if I'm offended, is because I'm selfish. Right? So, I want to get this out of the way. Prayer has to be seated and rooted in the ground of humility. You have to have your, your horizontal relationship right before your vertical can be had. But this is the exact opposite of what the religious spirit tells you. The religious spirit tells you you have to have your vertical right, and then your horizontal will go right. No, Jesus says, if you can't even love your brother whom you can see, how are you going to claim to love me who you can't? Over and over and over in Scripture, he tells us, if this isn't right, then this has no power. You with me? So the religious spirit wants to flip it upside down and make this more important than this. And then you're super spiritual when this is right. Well, I just have a relationship with the Lord, brother. Well, why do you treat everybody like, like, like bad? Why are you snippy all the time and mean and arrogant and selfish and rude? And like, I don't want to be around that. You with me? This is why marriages have to be right this way before you're going to have a positive interaction with Jesus in your marriage. Okay, we got all this? These are all prefaces of what I'm about to say here because I need you to follow me. All right, so I want to get that out of the way. All right, Psalm 115, did you put it up there? The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's. Who owns the heaven? God does. That's his realm. You get this. Heaven is his domain. It's where we're ultimately going to be, under his rule, under his kingdom, under his power. Heaven is the Lord's. But the earth he has given to the children of men. Who owns this? Why do we act like we don't then? 
See, we, we run Christianity in such a way that we actually don't believe we own this place. We're constantly, what we call praying is um, sniveling, begging for God to do something when we have the power and authority to already do it. People are like, well, God didn't answer my prayer. That's because you were the answer to the prayer. God didn't change this situation in my life. That's because you were supposed to change it. You were the answer to that moment, that situation. And you were praying for something more. You're actually praying for what you already possessed, yet you did not believe you possessed it. Therefore, you never got the answer, and then you blamed God for it. See, at the root of unanswered prayer, most of the time is unbelief. I see people all the time, you know, coming like, well, God just ha you know, hasn't done this in my life yet, and I just don't know. Why, ha why are you upset? Because it hasn't happened. Are you dead? No? Well, then you're not out of time. Keep praying. Why are you going to let unbelief come just because you haven't seen it? Oh, I forgot, because you think you're the capital G God. But you're not. But we act like it. And you know why we act like it? Because we're made in his image. Okay, let me, let me just say it this way. When God created fish, and fish begat fish, do fish have the nature of a lion? So whatever is begat in the nature of, or the likeness of, it has the nature of. True or not? Do lions act like fish, even though they begat more lions? But if we're made in his image, then we also should possess his nature which is what he organically does. It's how he reacts and responds, true or not? You with me? We're supposed to react and respond like God. The problem is, is we act and respond like God as if we're the capital G. It's not wrong to act and respond like God, but it's wrong to act like God outside of his nature. What was the nature of God when he came to this earth? Service and humility. It's who God is. It's how he actually, organically, reflexively moves in a situation. He serves because it's his nature. So anytime you and I see in our life where we're not operating according to the nature of God, then we know that the, that the identity of God or the likeness of God has been hijacked by a different power. Even if you're a Christian. You've allowed the nature of God to be hijacked, to be stolen, to be shoplifted from God Almighty to be used in a way that God would never use his own nature. You with me? Okay. So who owns the earth? How come, see, so many people, so many people, I mean, especially heathens and atheists or even just, you know, weak Christians and be like, well, why would God let all these bad things happen? He doesn't, you do. See, I'm going to say something that's going to really rub you raw in your, <laughs> your theology, but give me a chance to explain it. Okay? Uh, I hate what religion has done to us. We can't even believe the word of God. See, God's in control, but he's not in charge.
Think about that for just a second before you crucify me. If God were in charge, would there be murder in this earth? If God were in charge, would there be pornography and lust and sexual issues? If God were in charge, would there be sickness and disease and death? If God were in charge, in fact, we know that God's realm, he owns the heavens. When we get there, none of those things will be present. Why? Because he's in charge. And in control. But here, he's, he's in control, but he's not in charge. In other words, he's waiting for permission to be God in you. And if you don't give him permission, he will not override your authority. He won't. Because we're made in his image, and you've got to understand one thing. When he made this earth, he put us here to rule, not himself. He doesn't want to rule this place. It was never the intention of God to rule this place. It was always the intention of God in the beginning for us to rule the earth, true or not. So what God intends is the goal for the whole journey. Just because sin entered it doesn't mean that all of a sudden, because Adam screwed up, that we lose all ability to rule the earth. No, why do you think he sent Jesus? To restore the rule and the authority to us to rule the earth. Why do you think Jesus left? Because he doesn't want to rule it yet. It took a man to bring it back to man, and that man left, leaving it in our hands. Why do you think he sent the Holy Spirit? To help us rule. I always wondered, why is he called the helper? He's God. He should be in charge. But that's not what his name means. The Holy Spirit means helper. In other words, he backs you when you operate in his nature. Let me say it like this. Authority and power are different. Okay? You know that in our, our sense, all right? our, our, our American, or anywhere, anywhere in the world. Let's just take, let's just take a police officer. Right? The power is the gun. The authority is the badge. So what the badge represents is an entire kingdom that will come down on you if you threaten the individual. Even though it's one person against 20, that badge tells all the 20, you know, we can take him. But that badge means we're going to lose. With me or not? Jesus says, I've given you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions, things that ruin this earth, the things that are trying to usurp what's in charge. Well, the battle of what we call life is, is who's going to run it, you or the, or the devil? Because God's not going to. He'll empower you until he comes back. And then when he comes back, he's going to just put it all down and make us all bend the knee. And then he's going to be in charge and in control. And that's what we're going to be looking for. But until then, we have the mandate to do what he did. It says he came to destroy the works of the devil. True or not? How can we help the devil more than we help God? Is complaining a work of the devil? And why is your mouth so full of it all week long?
Do you, do you realize that the Israelites didn't make it in because of unbelief and complaining? Two sins that we actually sweep under the rug as Christians. We're more concerned about, you know, murder and drugs and rape and pornography and all that. But the reason that they could, and I'm not saying those things are, are good. I'm just saying that the reason they weren't able to enter into the promised land was because of complaining, murmuring, and unbelief. They didn't believe the authority God gave them. They walked their entire life living as if they didn't have the man Jesus with them. What does it say in Hebrews? That that same rock that followed them was what? It was Christ. He was with them in the wilderness. So who owns the earth? Why do we pray then? For the influence of another kingdom to come. We pray because we have authority. So we're not praying that we would get it and hoping that God will give it. We pray because we have it. In other words, we're the cop, we have the badge, bring the army. But we don't pray like that, do we? Most prayers are just sniveling little petty requests that are underlined and residued with this idea that, well, we just hope it happens. But if it doesn't, it's the will of the Lord. Is it really? Maybe it's not happening because it wasn't the will, it was the will of God. Maybe it's not happening because you just decided it wasn't your will. Are you with me? Do you realize every that both powers are waiting for the advancement of the power of your action, your word. In any relationship that I have, I can choose to be mean and spiteful and sniff, snippety and everything. And then when I begin to do that, the enemy's just going to jump on my authority and just, just wreck somebody because I chose to do that. But if I turn and shift and I take my focus into being positive and encouraging them and loving them, then, then, then the Holy Spirit's going to take that and be like, that's what I'm looking for. And he's going to place it in their heart. Both have power. Both have authority. One has authority because it was robbed from you. The other has authority because it's from God. With me, the only authority the devil has is what you give him. Why do you think he needs political governors and rulers? Why do you think he needs states, governments, mayors, lawyers? Why do you think he needs those people? Because he has no authority. He's been stripped of his authority. This is why he wants political influence. Because he uses the authority of man to implement his deeds. And the church got so spiritual at some point that she decided not to raise up politicians. Jesus, when he comes back, will be a political ruler. It will go his way. And he will mandate law. You with me? Don't tell me he's not interested in politics. Now, I don't want to go into that too much because some of y'all are, some of y'all need to love the president. Where'd my water go? Some of y'all have a hard time loving Biden. Okay. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8 says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, he divided of them amongst the mankind. He fixed the borders of his people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion was his people. And Jacob, he had allotted his heritage. In other words, what he's saying is, is that God gave us the land 
The land was our inheritance and we're his inheritance. We get the land, God gets us. Why? Because if God has us, he also has the land. You with me? See, if I, if I, if I, if I gain your heart, then I gain everything you own. But if I gain what you own, I don't always have your heart. Are you following me? Okay, so our portion was supposed to be here. This, it was, that was God's intention. Um, what God intended in the beginning is supposed to be what happens all the way through. God set the garden. He says, make the world the same way. How many of you guys know that the world wasn't the Garden of Eden? The Garden of Eden was one isolated spot on the earth, and then God told Adam, you do what I've done here everywhere. I gave you the model. Now, do it everywhere. Right? And even under the fall, the mandate was still the same. Go out, work the ground. You still have the same mandate. You're just going to do it with troubles and trials and difficulties now. Stuff that you didn't have to deal with before, you've got to deal with it now. Same mandate, different burden. You with me? Did God's mandate change because of sin? No. Not at all. You with me? You're supposed to subdue the earth. That's what it said, didn't it? Subdue it. You with me? Is everybody with me? All right. I'm jumping around here, but I want you to, I'm, gonna, I'm hopefully going to pull this together. I'm trying to create a platform here. When Jesus comes and he calls 12 apostles, right? Why did he use that word? Did you realize that wasn't a spiritual word? That wasn't a heavenly word? That wasn't word that came from God? That word was borrowed from the Greek culture. Jesus took that word intentionally from mankind. Why? Because mankind has what? Authority. He took that word from the Greeks and he impregnated it into his word and it became what we know as a spiritual term. It was a very carnal term. In fact, it was a very offensive term because the word apostle comes from the idea that what, ha- what would happen is, is that Rome began to subjugate the earth. All right? They would take over your town, murder your wife, take your family. They would treat you however they wanted to treat you. And then they would leave. Well, what happened was is that as they began to move forward, they began to conquer more and more cities. But then when they went back to those cities that they conquered, they found that nothing changed. The culture was still the same. The rebellion was still there. They were putting out fires constantly. So they decided to come up with this idea of what they called an apostle, one who was sent from the king. And, and what they would do is they weren't just, what's cool is, is they weren't just apostles in the biblical sense of what we know. So, some apostles were poets. Some apostles were history teachers. Some apostles were um, artists. Some apostles were politicians. Some apostles were or musicians. Because what they wanted to do is they didn't want to just subjugate the culture. They wanted to impregnate the culture. They wanted to make the culture just like Rome. So that when the king would come, he would feel comfortable in the city that was subjugated. This is what the word apostle means. It means one who's sent from God to go and change after subjugation the culture that was subjugated so that the king feels comfortable in the presence of the city. So that word was an offensive word because it meant you had already been subjugated. It meant you lost your identity. It meant you lost your history, your culture. It meant you lost everything. When the apostles came from Rome... Everything changed. People began to speak different languages. The language of Rome was imposed upon the people. The art, 
the, 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 the builders would come and build buildings that would look like Rome. Why? Because when Jesus calls them apostles, he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take the kingdom of God after I subjugate it, and I want you to advance it and make it look like where I came from. I want the culture to be the same, the art to be the same, the word to be the same, the music to be the same. Because why, why did he tell them that? Because it's their job to do it, not his. You can't pray prayers like, Lord, save the world. <laughs> he won't. He did that once. It's our job to enforce it. So many people pray prayers and waste time in the presence of God asking for things that have already been completed. God backs you, or, or the enemy does. Either way, everything you do will be backed by a foreign power. Are you with me? The Bible says there's three heavens. Well, it says there's a third heaven, which means there's a first and a second. This is the first. The second heaven is where the angels have their, their uh, heyday, their operated force, and the third heaven's where Jesus is. It says in Christ, when we were new creations, the word there it means a, a brand new prototype, something that's never been seen before. We're new creations in Christ, the Bible says, I think it's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. That word means something that's never existed before now created. In God's mind, when he created you at the cross, nothing like you had ever existed before, except in Jesus, which is why he's called the firstborn of many brethren. Because Jesus was the intention of God. And so us as the new prototype, we're supposed to operate under the same intention that Jesus did. As I was just here in worship earlier, I just felt like I heard the Lord tell me, my people have my ear, but what I'm hearing doesn't sound like my son. Ouch. See, prayer initiates the victory that the works of transformation are supposed to maintain. Why do we work? Because we've won. Religion flips it to get you to work so that you can win. When you pray from that mentality, you're not going to receive what you're praying. If you're praying for your husband or wife or spouse or kids or whatever it might be, and you're praying from the standpoint of the, under, of the, of the reality in your head that you don't think you own what you're asking for, then you're not going to get what you're asking for. But that's how we pray. We pray through hope instead of faith. You know, the two are different. It's one thing I've seen over the last 25 years. People, Christians are notorious for confusing hope and faith. What they call hope is what they call faith. What, what, what they think hope is is what faith is. And, what they, and they, just, they reverse it. Well, I'm just believing the Lord. No, you're hoping. Because my Bible says faith is a substance. It means you own it. It's tangibly accessible to you. You possess it, and you can't be convinced you don't possess it. No demon, no angel, no person, no sermon, no pastor, no political environment can convince you that you don't own the thing. We are saved by, through, how many of you in here absolutely know you're born again? Can anybody take that from you? 
Can any pastor take that from you? Can any political government take that from you? Can a bullet take that? Why? Because you own it. It's a possession. You have it. And nothing can convince you that you do not. When you pray through faith that way, it changes things. But we're praying from the hope that it'll happen, not from the possession that we already have obtained it. When you know that what you're asking for is as sure as your salvation, you watch God begin to move. So many people, well, I prayed and I didn't see anything. That's because you were praying from hope. Hope is nothing more than an anchor for your soul. That's what the Bible says. Your soul is your emotions. Some of you need a bigger anchor. You with me? Some of your emotions are all over the freaking place. You judge your Christianity by it. You judge your day by it. You judge your week by it. You judge your year by it. You judge your family by it. You judge your marriage by it. You judge your kids by it. You judge your political system by it. Listen, I don't care how strong the anchor is. In fact, sometimes if the anchor is stronger than the boat, all that's going to happen is it's just going to tear everything apart. You with me? The anchor has to be in conjunction to the size of the boat. Otherwise, it'll cause chaos. Are, are you, are you understand what I'm saying? See, prayer and worship are the war. That's where we fight. Okay? But character and authority transform culture that was defeated by the war. So what we're trying to do out there by working for the gospel is transform a culture without actually enforcing the war. In other words, you're trying to go to battle with a gun and not a badge. That's fine until the other guy pulls out a gun. I'm speaking hypothetically, not physically. See, poor character doesn't lead to a powerful message. The gospel has got to be preached by people who actually believe it. I'm not talking about for salvation. This is why we dumbed everything down. Well, I believe in Jesus, so I can preach the gospel. No, gospel means good news. <laughs> Most of us are depressed, so we have no authority to preach good news. See, when, when, when Jesus came on the scene, he wasn't just like, you know, oh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, Jesus isn't familiar with depression. If he's not familiar with depression and we're created his image, then why are we familiar with what he isn't made in, the image of? The only reason you're familiar with depression is because you allow yourself to be. You have your own authority. You realize how many people are on medication because they think they need to be, not because they actually do? Even, even physicians and science will tell you that stress creates most, most illnesses. And then we have to learn how to self-medicate because we've bound ourselves to an image that we weren't created in. Oh, my goodness. Go to Genesis 1. And go to verse 26. I just want you to see it so you don't know I'm a false prophet. All right? And God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea 
rule over the birds of the sky, over the cattle of all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We were created to what? Rule over everything. Listen, not over each other. Whoops. Why? This is why Jesus showed up as a servant. Because it says we have the authority to rule everything here except one another. So you know when marriage is getting problems? When one tries to rule the other one. Why? Because the nature of Adam kicks in and the spirit of rebellion says, you're not going to do that to me. I have rights. Actually, you don't. But you've believed the lie and you think you do. Your rights were stripped away at the cross. You have the right to surrender to Jesus or run from him. Those are the only two rights you get. So man was created uh, in the image of God. You with me? Okay. Okay, let, let, me, let me say it this way. Man, man is created to enforce what God creates. Okay? Whatever man, whatever God created we have the authority to recreate. Does it make sense? Did God create peace? We have the authority to what? Create peace. The sons of God will be what? Why? Because we're made in his image. What was the first thing God did in creation? He brought peace. You got to bring peace before you can bring restoration, before you can bring creativity. Right? So if we're trying to bring creativity to the world, if we're trying to bring the restoration to the world, and we haven't given them peace yet because we don't have it ourselves, what are we giving? We don't have nothing. I would rather get people right and founded in God and then go do the work than to try to just go do the work for the work's sake without people, you know, broken people can't fix things. <laughs> they just can't. So, so let, me, let me just say this about Genesis 1. God didn't teach Adam how to battle the lie. You guys know that? Remember when the, the enemy came and said, did God say? He questioned God's original intention. Do you realize what's happening in society now today is the same principality that's been operating in, in Adam and Eve in the very beginning as of now? What, he, he challenges the intention of God. Every other spirit under that micro, it comes under that in a micro session. He challenges the order of God. He challenges the, 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 the intent of God. How do we, we see it in culture? People don't even know if they're, they're men or women anymore. They don't know what bathroom to use. They don't know whether a baby's more important than the egg of an eagle. Why? Because the, the, the spirit of the world challenges the authority and the intent of Father. You with me? So, God didn't teach Adam how to battle the lie. I always thought that was really interesting to me. It's like, wait a minute, if you're going to put this guy here and you're going to give him an enemy, why don't you tell him how to fight the enemy? Why? Because the lie has no room for focus. What has room for focus is the truth that combats the lie. If he would have just believed the truth, the lie would have had no play. You with me? 
If he would have believed the truth of God, the promise of God, and what happened in his life, then what would have happened is, is that the lie would have had no room to move. God's not interested in teaching you about the lie. This is why I really despise seminars and conferences and books about, you know, the power of the enemy and how to do this and how the devil operates and what the devil does. If you want to study him, then go for it. But I want to study Jesus because within the truth is automatically the power to offset the lie. Paul says, I want you those, those things in your life, simple concerning evil and, and, and wise concerning good. I don't need to know the name of the demon to cast him out. Jesus only did that one time. And I think the only reason he did that was because he was taking names. Tell me your name. Why? Because when it comes time for judgment, I got a special place for you. I want to know who you are. It wasn't because he needed the name to cast out the demon. These stupid theologies. See, doubt and faith both, both lead to obedience. See, the problem was is that Adam disobeyed God, but he obeyed the devil. Both doubt and faith lead to an obedience. They lead to an action. Why? Because you and I were made to be overshadowed. We have this incessant thing inside of us that wants to be ruled, which is why we create little political parties. Everybody thinks they're independent and they're their own person. That's just a load of hogwash that you tell yourself to be able to offset this thing inside of you that doesn't want to submit. The guy preaching on New York Street has a little billboard sign on one side, you know, the other has a little strap and it has the one side on the other. He says, he says, I'm a fool for Jesus. And everybody's making fun of him. Then he turns around and says, whose fool are you? Because you're somebody's. Everybody is somebody's fool. You think you, you're, in, you're, in, you're unique in that sense. No, you're going you're gonna to create a clan or a culture or somebody to follow because God made us that way. Which is why we hunger for community when we finally get saved. All right, so this is where it's going to get interesting for you. I'm going to try to hurry up. I'm sorry, guys. John chapter 10. I want to try to create a, a different mindset for you. We have to pray so that we bring a different mentality, a different kingdom in. All right? Follow me. I'm talking about prayer. You and I rule the earth. Without bringing in a higher power and a higher kingdom, then we're only going to rule within the ability that we have in ourselves, which is why most of us feel so defeated. All right, John chapter 10, verse 34. Jesus answered them and said, so they're, they're accusing him of saying that he's the son of God. Like that's a big blasphemous thing, right? And he even says this, is it not written in your law? Quote, I said to you that you are gods. John 10, 35, the next verse. If he called them gods, if God called them gods to whom the word of God came and that scripture can't be broken. In other words, in God's mind, you're a lowercase g God. I know a lot of you are going to call me a cult after this, but that's all right. People already do that anyway, so it's good. We'll just give them more ammunition. Look, I'm not saying you are a capital G. I'm saying that in God's mind, you are made in his image, and you look like him. And he calls you the same thing he calls his son. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, is he not? He is the priest of all priests, is he not? He's the great high priest. Priest, in Revelation, Jesus, two, two times, in chapter, I think, one and, verse five, and in chapter five, he calls us kings and priests. He's, he calls us the same thing that he is. In fact, he prays in John 17 that we would be one with him, not separated, not joined, but as one. In other words, how God sees Jesus, God sees us. 
as lowercase g gods. Now, I'm not going to sit here and call myself a god and run around and take the, I'm not going to do that. It's stupid. I don't have what God has. I'm not like God in that way, but I'm in his nature. I'm in his, in his, in his image. He's the great I am, not me. He's the one who has all power, not me. He's the one that has all authority, not me. However, when he puts me here to rule, all he's waiting on is for me, who has authority over this earth, to ask him who is greater than I am to come in to the situation, and he won't do it until I ask him. You guys remember when Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus after he got uh, raised from the dead? He got all power, all authority. I mean, he's, he's like in charge and in control, and he's on the earth, and he's walking with these two guys, and they don't even know it's him. And these guys pull off toward the evening. He walks with them all day long. I don't know about you, but if you're traveling with somebody or hiking with somebody on a trail and you know that you're going to spend the night somewhere along the trail and you just meet up with some people and you start chit-chatting with them and talking and you're hiking, all of a sudden they pull off to a, to a campsite. You know, human nature says you just kind of go with them. Man, man, we've been talking all day long. Hey, you know, I'll, I'll go camp with these guys. You know, Jesus didn't do that. He kept walking. Why? Because he's not going to assume that he has leadership and rule in your life. You have to ask him to come. And he kept on walking, and they said, wait, wait, where are you going? Come, come stay with us. And guess what he did? He turns around, and he goes in with them. Why? Because that's his nature as God, to not assume and not to dictate and not to usurp. Why? Because this is our world. Even though he, bought, he beat it, he's the one that take the, took death and the keys back. He's the one that gained the victory. He's the one that gained the honor. He's the one that gained the name of all our names. He gave us the authority back and said, I'm not going to superimpose on what I'm giving you back. I gave it to you in the beginning. No strings attached. I give it to you now. No strings attached. And I will back you as you walk in my ways. But if you don't ask me in, I'm going to keep walking. Maybe, maybe your situation hasn't changed because you haven't invited a greater authority into your situation. Maybe you're begging. And he's just like, no, I, don't, I didn't raise beggars. I raised sons. You don't have to ask. He says, how, how, how much more? How much more if you, if, if, will your father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask than somebody who's asking for a fish or, or bread? So many people walk into prayer with a defeatist mentality because they don't see it right away. You know why they don't see it right away? Because God doesn't pay right away. <laughs> but your culture has, ch has changed your mindset that you get everything that you want right now, and if you don't get it right now, then it must not be real. That is so opposite to everything that's in the Bible. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a, a man who planted a seed or a mustard seed. And then in time, what happens? It grows up and it becomes strong. But it wasn't strong right away. It took time. And he equates that mustard seed over and over again to faith. Sometimes you have a seed when you know that you're supposed to be a tree, but you just haven't got there yet, and you quit. Because it's hard, because you have to go through the seasons of change and difficulty and drought and, and, and uh, wind and, and all that, and you just quit. See, in God's mind, in God's mind, we're just like him. 
Revelation 1, 6, he's made us kings and priests unto God our Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever. Revelation 5, 10, he made us uh, unto our God kings and priests, and we, sh- and, and we shall reign on the earth. This is in the end. <clears throat> Revelation 5, go read it. You know, I think there's a song that used to be out that was about the scripture, and they changed it to he shall reign on the earth, but it's not what it says. It says we shall reign on the earth. You know why? Because everything we were raised in religiously makes us really believe that we're nothing but a sinner and a worm, and that's it, and we're just going to wait for the sweet by and by. That's a slap in the face of the cross. I have a problem with that kind of theology. You know why? Because it makes everything about you. Your whole Christianity becomes about your sin instead of his blood. Like somehow your sin's more powerful than his blood. Like somehow he can't, he can't totally cleanse you. Like there's always this thing inside of you that, well, I'm just this poor sinner. And that's not what my Bible says. Now in my flesh there's just no good thing that dwells. But he dwells in me. I'm a new species. I've never been seen before. The angels. <laughs> See, in the first, the first part of creation, we were made a little lower than the angels. When we were born again, we were made a little higher than them. Now we inhabit two spaces at once. Isn't that crazy? We just don't believe we do. See, when the intent is ruined, so is the mandate. When God's intention is ruined, the mandate of God is ruined. The old culture likes to beat us into uh, like the submission that we're nothing, and then we have to grovel around in our religious uh, achievements to be able to feel worthy and, 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 and capable. Go, go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. I'm going to try to speed this up really. <laughs> Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, and the first thing he says, when you pray, pray like this. What does he say? Who art in heaven? The acknowledgement of who owns heaven, right? Why? Because that's the power we're calling upon. We're calling upon the army of heaven. Our Father, who art in heaven. Our Father. He's the first one that gave us the authority to address God as Father. He was a lot of other things to a lot of people back in the Old Testament. But Jesus was the first one that said, you can now call him Father. And this was even before they were saved. Isn't that crazy? Why? Because the word of God outlives you in your time frame. And so he says, you call upon the word of God. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the next one? Why does he pray? Why does he teach us to pray for his kingdom to come? Because his kingdom can't come unless we pray it. His kingdom is bound on coming into here until someone who has authority here says, we want you to come. We surrender our kingship. We lay our crown down. We lay everything down. We want you to rule, not us. But he can't until we let go of it. You know how many times the situations in marriage and all these kinds of things begin to happen just because somebody's hanging on to it? Have you ever had something in your life when, when God asked you to let it go and when you finally did, everything worked? I guess that's just me. The rest of you guys need to experience that. It's pretty awesome when you finally let go. I had a lot of ladies out, uh, wanting to marry me when I was young. And, and I finally got to the place where I like, I don't want any of this. I'm going to walk with Jesus. I'm going to marry the gospel. I'm going to stay single. I'm, I let it all go. I didn't care about it anymore. My heart was liberated. I was finally felt free. 
And then when I finally let it go, God sends me my wife. And she's so much better than anything I would have ever chosen. When you let it go, things just work because what what happens is we're surrendering to a greater kingdom to come into ours. But if you insist on ruling yours, God will let you. You want to run your marriage? He'll let you do that. I don't suggest it. He was teaching us to invite our father to partner with us and rule here on the earth, which was always the original intention. You remember in Genesis when God comes down to walk with man. Why did he walk with him in the cool of the day? God came down from heaven to walk with man. Why? To join with him to see what man was doing. It wasn't to, it was, it was even more than just fellowship. It was fellowship, but God was one. what did you build today? What did you create today? What did you do today? Let me look at it. Wow, that's awesome. This is great. What'd you name the animals? Yeah, God didn't name the animals. Adam did. Why? Because we're in control. But do you know what we're supposed to do because we're in control? Relinquish it. What did Jesus do when he was in the garden? Not my will, but yours be done. It took a human being inviting God to come and place his will into this earth because God will not move in situations unless human beings allow him to. Is this making sense? If you're mad at me, it's okay. Just breathe. Without our invite, God will not rule. If it, we're in charge and we're going to be judged by our works. Why? Because he wants to see if we created what he created. If we created something he didn't, he knows we were not in unity with him. The work will tell where our heart was. Your work will tell where your heart is. Are you with me? Matthew 4, you guys understand the temptation? The devil takes Jesus up to the top of this place. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world. What's he tell Jesus? Everything is mine. I'll give it to you if you bow and worship me. The devil owned everything. Why? Because man gave him everything. And Jesus didn't correct them and go, oh, you're wrong. I own all this. He didn't correct him at all because it was truth. Man gave everything to the demon. And then man got everything back from the demon. And now man continues to give everything back to the demon. I don't understand why. The good thing is, is that we don't hold the keys anymore. Which means if we give everything to the demon, all we got to go back to is our older brother and go, uh, I messed up. He's like, I got you. I still got the keys. Okay, good. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, All power is given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and teach all nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always to the end of the world. It's interesting that he says, I'm with you always until the end of the world. You're not always with me. That's the basis of the relationship. It doesn't matter whether you're with him. It matters whether he's with you or not. Matthew 7 is based around the fact whether he knows you, not whether you know him. Does it make sense? Yeah, I want to know him. But even more so, I want him to know me. The only way he can know me is if he knows who he created me to be, not who I create myself to be. Who he created me to be is in the image of his son. My job is to emulate Jesus because I'm allowed to. 
Does this make sense? Yes. All right. So many times we operate in our own power and authority. Which is why nothing works. Ephesians 6, I want to just take you through this here. It says that, that word, it says, we, re- we don't wrestle against uh, flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and rulers of darkness, spiritual wickedness, high places. Okay. I want you to understand that, that you guys understand principality? It's a governing demon over a regional area. It's not an individual cohort like lust or anger or something like that. All those things operate underneath a, a, a principality, a general, a headman. Certain regions have certain principalities over them. You can't cast principalities out. Anybody that tells you that, it's a liar. And I, I challenge you to go try because your life's going to get real hard the moment you start shaking your fist in the air and trying to cast out a principality over Harrison. You know why? Because not one person can take a, out a principality. It takes a community. Their nature is to rebel against you and defy you. Principalities show their power through government, through school structures, through this, the, the heathens in the area. So if you have a high poverty area and a high homelessness area, you're seeing the results of a principality because a principality can only operate in the mind of man. This is why it says casting down imaginations in 2 in, in Corinthians 10, the spiritual warfare is, has to do a lot with the mind because a principality operates through the minds of people. So when you're fighting a principality, you're not fighting so much something that's up here. We wrestle with this, but what we're seeing is the influence of it on the people. So how we wrestle with those things is by preaching the same way Jesus did, repent. In other words, change how you think. When we get people to change how they think, the principality is weakened. When we get people to actually believe that they're not beggars and homeless and prostitutes, they were created to be sons of God, and they have purpose and destiny, then we're weakening the power and the influence of the principality over the person. So we wrestle with it that way. But we first have to wrestle with it in prayer, which is by calling forth a higher power than the, than the principality. And we have the authority to do that because the Bible says we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. With me? So we're praying from that position down instead of that position up. Does it make sense to you? So that word, that word um, powers can be translated, it, it comes from different, different words, but it means certain things. But one way it can be translated as origins. And Paul, Paul in Philippians 4 says, I've, when, I, when I preach the gospel to you, he, that word, he's, when I first preached the gospel, that word first preach means also origins. I, I explained to you the origins of the gospel. I explained to you what God intended for in the beginning. Well, this principality here in this word in Ephesians 6 has everything to do with uh, an origin. Why? Because the, the devil wants to change your intent. It's, it happened in the beginning. Are you a son of God? Did God say? Matthew 4, are you a son? Changing the attention, getting you to doubt the word of God over your life, getting you to doubt your authority, getting you to doubt your position, getting you to doubt the fact that you are a son and you have everything given to you for life and godliness, the Bible says, getting you to doubt those things. And that's why we see the origin, uh, that principality over the nation of America. Transgenderism and all this other stuff and homosexuality, changing the origin, the original intent. You see what's happening in the spiritual world, you can reflectively take it back to what the church is not operating in in authority. And if you t- tolerate it for a long period of time, then what happens is the next generation begins to celebrate it. And then if you speak against it, you're the demon. Why? Because the spirit of origin has a spirit of deception. And if you believe it long enough, you actually think it makes sense. And then you show compassion on things that God is going to judge. It doesn't mean you get to judge it. 
It just means that thing shouldn't have compassion either. The person should, but the thing shouldn't. Your job in the gospel is to figure out how to separate the person from the demon. You with me? That word wrestle there against flesh and blood, and we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, it means it's two words. One's it means to arise and wrestle and to cast out and throw down. The other one can mean to endure for a time. In other words, we fight and wrestle and to cast things down that have been exalted up against the knowledge of God, but we must do it for a season and a time. Most Christians only wrestle for a short period of time in their prayer, and then they quit, and then they miss their victory, and they wonder why. And they think, well, it, just not, it must not have been the will of the Lord. And we try to spiritualize and theologize something that, that is never supposed to be the plan of God. Have you guys ever, ever, ever seen somebody get instantly healed? I have. But do you, know, do, you know that, do you know there's times where those people that were instantly healed, do you know how many times they came to the altar to get prayed for and didn't get healed? But, but, but all of a sudden, what made that one, one time different? It was their persistence. So, so, well, I haven't been healed. I've been prayed for. Get prayed for again. Well, I don't want to come up there every week. Why not? Because I, I don't want to be seen as unbelieving. Coming forward to get prayed for is not being seen as unbelieving. It's coming to see, being seen as being faithful. <laughs> see how the demon just changes your mindset about it? Are you guys with me? So we have to pray according to the intent of God. Why? Because if the origin of God was for us to rule and we pray outside of that intent, then the prayer can't be answered. All prayer has to be modeled after what God originally intended. If God hates divorce, then we know that we can pray for marriages to stay together. And we know by faith that it can be the will of God. And we don't have to wait and we don't have to question and we don't have to hope. We just proclaim what we know to be the word of the Lord. And we do not allow the principality in the mind of that person to operate first in prayer and then in discipleship. We look him square in the eyeball and tell them, God is for you and he's for your marriage. But it doesn't feel like it. That's okay. Give him a minute. He'll change how you feel. This is wrestling with principalities that have deep-seated themselves into people's hearts and minds. See, princes fall over cities when the church is in unity, and through prayer and discipleship, they enforce the culture of the kingdom. They apostolize the kingdom upon the powers of, of, of the area and upon the people of the earth. This is why the churches don't have any, any, any much culture, because they're, they're too worried about their Sunday morning experience instead of tearing down strongholds in people's heads. Yes. I mean, there's churches in this town, guys, where the, the people are full of adultery in the seats. Where worship leaders are allowed to get up on stage high on, on marijuana. How are we going to affect the principality when we're bowing to it? See, the origin changes the intent. It, it, it tells you that you only exist because of your job and because of your taxes and you're just the provider and your wife doesn't care about you and all I am is here for is just the money and all she cares about is the, that it gets you into the its mindset instead of understanding, no, I'm a man of God. I have the arsenal of heaven behind me. I wear the badge of the authority of the kingdom of God and I'm calling forth the kingdom of righteousness to come in Jesus' name. You with me? 
See, a Christianity that's not well balanced in the gospel is very, very um, circular in its, in its journey. See, the Bible says when, when, when the uh, Old Testament temple got ruined and they went to re- rebuild it, it says every man built with a sword in one hand and a hammer in the other. See, what most Christians do is they'll pick one or the other. They either want a sword on everybody else and not deal with themselves, or they want to only make their Christianity everything about their moral purity and never go out and fight for anybody else other than themselves. We're supposed to do both. In other words, as you're fighting for someone else, you're building yourself. Because as you build for someone else, you're naturally built yourself. Why? Because we're a body. When I strengthen this part, I'm naturally strengthened. When my, my, when my wife is strengthened, I'm strengthened. When she's doing good, I'm doing good. When I'm doing good, she's doing good. Why? Because we're together. When I build her, I build myself. I'm fighting on one hand, I'm building on another. And this is how we pray. We pray with the sword, we pray with the word, we pray in one hand, and we build our life and everybody else around us with another. Most Christians don't get into that. They, they believe the lie, the origin of the, of the principality, that you're not this, you're not that, you're not going to be good, this is never going to happen for you, you're never going to get healed, your marriage is never going to get saved, your kids are going to go to hell, blah, 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 all these other things. And then we begin to drop our sword and we get our hammer and we try to build everything with the hammer without actually adjusting things in the spirit realm and calling on the right power to come and do what it's supposed to do. And then it comes back into sin-focused Christianity again. You're a worm, you're a sinner, just wait for the sweet by and by. Jesus is coming. Yeah, he's coming to judge whether you worked for him or not. Whether you sat in your pew and made your whole religion about you and how you felt. You think I'm up here because I'm getting paid? Why, Why would I put myself through being a pastor, which is technically according to, like, Job labor forces, the highest stress job anybody can ever have, even higher stress than, than air traffic control pilot or navigators. Why, why would I do that to myself and, and, and sacrifice four to five nights of my week for something without pay? Because he has my heart. And because I realize there's something to build that's bigger than me, and I realize that I'm expendable. See, I, had a, I preached this one time about being seated next to Christ in heavenly places, that we're seated at the right hand of God. And this guy hammers me on the internet about, we're not seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is. It doesn't say that in, in that verse. It's in Ephesians 2, 6, he says, he raised, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he says, it just says that we're seated in heavenly places. It's like, we talk about a religious devil. You know, like splitting hairs over something when the real work is in prayer and here, but, but, and I didn't want to argue with him. But here's, here's what the Bible says. Raised up with him, seated, he seated us with him. Okay? Is that what your Bible says? He, he seated us with him. Okay. If I seat you with me, you're probably next to me. Where is he? At the right hand of God. So where am I? Same place. But some religious idiot wants to, you know, get on the internet and argue with me about the placement of where we sit. Who cares? I'm in heaven. Leave me alone. <laughs> I know I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I know I'm going long, guys. I really want you to get this. Matthew 17. This is the story where Jesus comes up on the mountain 
he sees the, he's transfigured. I'm just going to paraphrase it real quick. They come back down. Nine of the disciples are trying to cast out a demon. They can't. There's something that's, listen, they were, it says the Bible says that they were concerned. They were worried. They, they didn't understand why they couldn't. I think that's a pretty powerful statement. We're, we're, we're excited when it finally happens. They were perplexed when it didn't. And they weren't even saved yet. You with me? There was no bloodshed. And they come down and, like, and he, he, he cast this thing out. And they're like, why couldn't we do it? Like they were confused. They actually believed in the power that God gave them. And here's what he says. Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith as great as mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move here from there, and nothing will be impossible for you. And he does say that, however, this thing, this thing can't come out by prayer and fasting. But here's what I want you to understand. The mustard seed is growth over time. It's something very small and insignificant, and then over time it could become something very great. So the, the context of what he's saying here is, is that your faith is small. It's, it's little, okay? That's why you weren't able to do it yet. Okay, it wasn't that it wasn't there, it was little, Okay? So in other words, what he's saying on is you're trying to take out a principality that's affecting people, and you're not there yet, which is why you couldn't do it. You haven't let your faith grow. It takes time. Jesus had already spent 33 years of, of growing his faith to this point as a human being. You with me? And so that, if you look at that, here's what it says. That word little faith, usually it, it can be translated as as a, a short period of time. In other words, he's, what he's saying is, is that you didn't stay in the fight long enough. And you quit. So you didn't see your victory. In prayer, sometimes we don't stay in the fight long enough. And we quit. My marriage, it's been... It's, listen, I mean, Abraham waited for Isaac for 20 years. You have to decide the value of your promise. If it's only worth two years of fighting for you, then you've set the value of your promise. Does this make sense? Yes. Little faith needs to be grown through adversity, trial, and continue to fight. And you continue to fight, and you continue to fight, and you continue to fight, and you continue to fight until something happens. I fought battles for a long time. I'm seeing things that are happening in my life right now that I prayed for 20 years ago. But I didn't quit. Did I do everything right? Absolutely not. Oh boy, I messed everything up a lot of times. But one thing I didn't do is I didn't quit. <clears throat> See, casting out a demon is not always a one-time shot. When you're dealing with something that, that requires more time, more sacrifice, and more growth to see victory, you have to put that time in, otherwise nothing's going to change. If a, if, a, if a situation's been in your life for a long period of time, technically, it's going to take a minute to be able to cast it out. Now, God can do it in a miracle, and I hope it does happen for you, but if not, you don't pull out of that fight. You pray, and you call the badge of heaven down, and you call for the authority of God, and you say, God, this is not my situation anymore. I give it to you. You rule it however you want. Does this make sense? And then he tells a parable in Luke 18 about the woman who always coming before the guy saying, hey, avenge me, avenge me, avenge me, avenge me, avenge me, avenge me. And finally, he's like, you're wearing me out. I'll avenge you. Why? Because she kept praying. Why was she praying that hard and that incessantly deep? Because she knew the authority of the one she was petitioning. See, the prayer was based upon his authority in the situation, 
not hers. She didn't have it. So many times you're trying to address a situation in your life based upon your authority, your word, your this, your that, when you need to address a higher power and invite him in to come and be and to avenge you. And the Bible says here, Jesus says that not only will he avenge you, but he will avenge you speedily. Does this make sense? Keeping our prayer in the fight, asking for intervention, pleading to a higher authority to intervene. Why? Because we know he's going to answer. We know his nature. We know it's his nature is not to, to, to cast us out. We're not praying from a begging uh, position, but a, a position of being convinced. We're praying according to the original intent. We're to rule. How we rule is we let him rule through us. We're weak. He is strong. But in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. Yes? Matthew eleven twenty four. whatever I tell you, he says, listen, I'm, listen, I'm telling you this. Whatever you ask in prayer, listen, verse 20, it's so, or Mark, I'm sorry, Mark eleven twenty four. <clears throat> I'm telling you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. He's not saying beg for it. He's saying, believe you already possess it. Like I said earlier, believe that you possess it just as surely as you know you possess your salvation. And when that comes, when that finally happens, the lie, the principality of origin, this thing that tries to change the destiny of your prayer, you're gonna like look at it and shake your head and go, no. No, you're not from God. I have a promise and you're a liar and you are not taking my authority. Not only are you not taking my authority, I'm using my authority to call a higher power against you. Make sense? Luke 8, 25, they're in the boat. Storm's coming. They're going across the other side to take, take on a principality, the demoniac. They don't even know that yet. Jesus is going across to take out a demon. He's like, you go to the other side. He's like, they're like, well, we can't go over there. That's where the demons are. That's where the heathens are. That's where they worship and eat pigs. That's unclean. He's like, no, you go over there. That was his command, true or not. If Jesus tells you to go somewhere, it's because you have the authority to affect the place he's calling you to. But they got in fear. And, the, and, and guess what? As they're journeying across the lake, what happens? The demon attacks. Of course he does. Do you expect anything different? Why are you surprised when Jesus goes and tells you to do something and then it gets hard? Like it's his fault. It's getting hard because you're actually close to threatening something. That's tr you threaten the existence of a different authority. And its job is to stop you from going to the other side. And Jesus, he, he wakes up and he looks at him and he says, where's your faith? I like that. Where is your faith? Here's what I think he's saying. I think he's saying, your faith was in me doing it when it's your job. You have rule over the earth. Didn't it say that? Over the sea, over the creatures of the land, everything. They forgot the origin. They forgot the intent. Why? Because of the storm that was around them. They forgot the authority that God gave them. He's like, you're looking for me to do something I told you to do. Do you think he knew the storm was coming? Absolutely. You think he was afraid to send his disciples into that? No, he believed in the power that was inside of them, but they didn't utilize it. The same thing with the, the miracle of the loaves and the fish. Do you realize that was the disciples' miracle? But they missed their moment. He says, you feed them. It wasn't his job, but they didn't believe that they could. All he was doing was trying to show them how to operate as a proper human being on this planet. And when they wouldn't and couldn't, he did it for them anyway because he's a good God. But originally, he intended for us to do that. 
pray, we pray as if we're not in charge. <sighs> I guess I could have just said that in the beginning and said amen, huh? You know, you're the will of God for the circumstance. Why is this so hard? Because he put you there. But it's like, yeah, my life was great before I accepted Jesus. Yeah, you, you, uh, you didn't have any enemy before that. Your enemy was trying to love you. God. You get saved, you choose sides, you actually have a devil now. You, have, you actually have somebody that says, I hate you. And I've always hated you. Jesus says, what, what king goes to war with 10,000 against a guy that has 20 and doesn't stop and consider what it's going to cost him before he goes out on this journey? You know what he's saying there? He's like, you know what? You're going to always be outnumbered. Until you create an ally with the king of kings and you call for him to come. And you're no longer outnumbered. See, if you look at it in the natural, if you look at what you don't have, you're going to miss what you always do. We can go to war outnumbered because we're not considering what we're up against. We're considering the resource of the kingdom that we summon. I'm outnumbered two to one on this one. That means all the more that God's going to do something because I'm going to call him in and no longer I'm outnumbered. I love what Hezekiah did whenever uh, Sennacherib was coming in to sack Israel and take them all out. He lays out, he takes all the threats of the enemy on this parchment, he lays them on the altar. And he says, God, this is what the enemy says. Now what do you say? Awesome story. I mean, even archaeologically. You know what, when they found, they found the place where that happened, where Sennacherib's army died in one night. They found it. You know what they also found there, archaeologically speaking? They found a bunch of skeletons of rats. You know what happened? They came in and brought the plague. And it killed their entire army in one evening. These rats came in out of nowhere with bubonic plague on them. And it went through the entire camp and killed them all. Why? Because at that point, we didn't have authority over the earth. And God did. So he can call in even rats to save his people. With me? The same way crows brought food to Elijah, an unclean beast, an unclean animal feeding a prophet. Why? Because of the authority over the earth. That we can even use things that are unclean and that are meant for evil and God turns it to our good because we have the authority to release the kingdom of heaven in that situation. Is your life full of rats? Maybe it's there because it's going to take out your enemy. Does this make sense? I mean, Sennacherib had, had sacked every city he had come to. I mean, they put people's bodies up on poles, the kings and the, and, the, of the, and the princes of the city. They stuck them up on long poles and leaned them against the city walls just hanging there. And they left them there for days. Powerful man. Hezekiah says, we see what the enemy says. I want to hear what you say. What was he doing? He was petitioning an army greater than the one he was facing. And God answered his prayer. You with me? Why is he the Holy Spirit? Because it's our job. You want to see Holy Spirit move? Try moving yourself. And he just might move with you. See, if Jesus didn't go away, we would have never fulfilled God's original intention. If Jesus was still here on this earth, 
there'd be a line a mile long waiting for him to do everything that's our responsibility. Oh, we got to go where Jesus is. That's why he's like, I got to go, guys. If I don't go, you, you won't rule. You'll look to me to do your job. So I'm going to send my spirit to fill you and help you do your, your, the job I gave you because I believe in all of you. God believes in you. The problem is you just don't believe in yourself. Last time man doubted himself, he got in trouble. Am I not like God? I thought I was. Maybe I need something else. I'll eat that fruit just to be sure. He lost the thing that he actually desired, which was being like God. You with me? I want you to pray, but I want you to pray from the proper, proper posture, from the proper authority. Can you do that? Can you take the things that are in your life and begin to actually sit down and say, God, I'm inviting you to come. And I'm going to do it for a while until I see your goodness in the land of the living. And I'm not going to move by what I'm seeing. Stand. Lord, we thank you for victory. You have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a mind that's just like Jesus. So we ask for the spirit of repentance to come in this place. And those who are willing, the Lord, to let it come. The spirit of repentance would come. Because that word repent means to change our mindset. We thank you that you're the king. You're the Lord. You're the God. You're the ancient of days. You're the highest of highest, king of kings, lord of lords. And we need you. We need you to help. We need you to be. We need you to move. We need you to exist and live and move and have your being in us, Lord. We invite you to circumstances. Just take whatever situation is in your life right now, whatever it is, and just say, God, I invite you into this. I'm done doing it by myself. I'm not going to try to fight this battle on my own. I lay it down, and I want to hear what you have to say. And I'm calling forth a greater kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. I give you this situation. I give you my marriage. I give you my finances. I give you the things I'm stressed and worried about. I let it go. I'm asking you. I'm inviting a greater authority. And I can't wait to see your promises fulfilled. I bless your children here, Father. I thank you for them. I'm asking that you lead them in grace. I'm asking you to give them patience. Let their love increase. That they would hold fast that line and not just wait hopelessly, but they would wait in faith. That this, this seed of faith would grow inside and they would stay in the battle. And they would continually petition for what they already know they possess because they possess it and they're asking for you to enforce it. We honor you, we thank you in Jesus' name. We ask, Father, for any person in this room that does not know you to be moved and pricked by the Holy Spirit, that you would lead them to salvation, you draw them to repentance. If there's anybody in here that needs the Lord, just after I get done praying, you can just come up and speak with me. But I bless you. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lift up his countenance upon you. May the Lord, God Almighty, give you peace. Amen.